Good morning. I'm Maureen Willis, and this morning's scripture is from the book of Esther, chapter 6, and verses 1 through 6. That night, sleep escaped the king, so he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The king inquired, what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. The king asked, who is in the court? Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. The king's attendants answered him, Haman is here, standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered, and the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? The word of the Lord. Thank you, Mo. In a little pre-sermon sermon, I just want to acknowledge something out loud that I felt in my spirit, uh, but I don't think I've mentioned here in this room. Uh, so back in February, our church celebrated uh, eight years in existence. I've been here for most of that. I came about six or seven months into our existence. I've been here for about seven and a half years. And for seven and a half years, there's been so much faithfulness of the Lord demonstrated in different ways. And we've been through a lot of different seasons as a church, from portable church through pandemic. But I just want to say in front of you and encourage you to kind of unify your spirit with mine. There's something that has been stirring and happening in our church in the last six months that is different than the previous seven years. Like the Lord is at work in some rich ways. And one of the reasons you've seen us do more things like make you talk to each other and ask for prayer for healing in the middle of the service is because we're just more comfortable with what it means to become a people. And I want you to know, I mean, if you're here like two weeks in and a bit introverted, that's okay. You can kind of wade in at your own pace. But there's a lot of things that are happening on Sundays in our gatherings. The Spirit is moving. I'm getting to see the fruit of it. But what has really encouraged me is I just am so aware of what is happening Monday to Saturday in living rooms, in ministry centers, um, and it's really sweet. And so I want to be thankful of it. I want to be conscious of it. I want to walk faithful in it. And also just want to honor it because it didn't come from me. <laughs> it didn't come from any man. It's from the Lord. And I just pray and trust that today as we look at the word that will lean in. Uh, I don't think this is a particularly amazing sermon. Nobody's going to put this one in publication. But this is the word of the Lord. And I want us to see how he does something so extraordinary in this story of Esther. And I want you to, I want you to find yourself in her story today. Because I believe what we see happen in the text today, God wants to do and is doing in us corporately, but also in your life and in your spirit. Uh, for those of us a certain age in the room, you might remember 
of the 1999 classic, The Sixth Sense. <clears throat> I think it's on Disney Plus if you're younger and you missed this. Uh, I don't want to spoil it, although you know it's been out long enough that uh, you can't get too frustrated at me. But it is famous for a surprising, didn't see that coming ending. And great storytellers are able to take us on a journey filled with all sorts of plot twists and lead us somewhere totally unexpected. But when we get there, we say, this is amazing. Esther is similar. And the author of Esther leverages a couple of classic literary devices. This is going to seem a little bit academic in the beginning, but stick with me because it shows something profoundly amazing. The author of Esther shows us a couple, uses a couple of literary devices uh, to take us on a journey to show us a profoundly glorious point. One of those literary devices is uh, peripatia or peripety. It's a sudden and unexpected change or fortune or a reverse of circumstances. It's the moment in the story that you go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. What was that? Uh, we see this particular device used in some ancient and classic literature like Sophocles, Oedipus Rex. Uh, modern examples are in movies like Casablanca, Cinderella, The Empire Strikes Back, The Princess Bride, and Godfather Part Two. I hope I covered all the spectrums of personality types in the room today. But this particular literary device, this dynamic is common in the scripture. So if you go all the way back to Genesis, there is a story of a man named Joseph. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. They traffic him as a slave into Egypt. When he finds himself in Egypt, he uh, suffers injustice, is imprisoned falsely. But then there is this divine turn, this from out of nowhere moment where all of a sudden the forgotten, betrayed prisoner becomes the person through whom God uses to feed and save the world. And Joseph ends up blessing the brothers that sold him as a slave. It's a totally surprising reversal. Matter of fact, the scripture actually includes this peripety in the text. You planned this for evil against me, Joseph says, but God meant it for good to bring about this present results, the survival of many people. I think about Moses. In Exodus, there is a genocidal a megalomaniac named Pharaoh um, who is attempting to exterminate a generation of Hebrew boys so that the uh, slaves that the, Hebrew, or that the Egyptians are, are ruling over don't become too powerful. By chance, Pharaoh's own daughter is in a river and he finds a little, she finds a little baby boy floating down the river. That baby boy, of course, we know to be Moses. She adopts Moses. Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household and then the surprising twist becomes the person who actually leads the entire nation of Israel out from under Pharaoh's oppressive regime. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're thrown into a fiery furnace, heated up seven times hotter than normal because King Nebuchadnezzar is furious at their refusal to bow down and worship and pay homage to him. Yet they're delivered from the fire, they're unhurt, leaving Nebuchadnezzar 
to actually identify this literary device. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him. And they have frustrated the king's word. He's talking about himself. Like they have frustrated, they have went against me, and it has turned everything upside down. Uh, And they yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any God except their own. And the same man that made a declaration that said, you guys worship me, made a declaration and said, worship Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. Daniel, a little bit later, in a similar circumstance with a different ruler, is thrown into a lion's den, left to die, but is released the next day without a scratch, and then the turn is those that wanted to end Daniel's life are consumed by the lions. Now, Esther combines this peripatia with another classical literary structure known as chiastic structure or a chiasm. And this is, sounds a little bit technical, and so I'm going to visualize it for an, an, in just a moment. But a, a chiasm or chiasic structure is when a story has parallel elements that work forward and then into reverse to make an extraordinary point. And so here is, it's a little bit small, but here is the chiastic structure of Esther. You're going to see the whole story and how it works together. The story begins with two incredible, splendorous feasts, right? And as we'll see in just a couple of weeks, the story ends with two feasts. One of these, the the first feasts are celebrating kind of the ugly materialism and the arrogance of man, and it concludes with a celebration of God's faithfulness and its providence. Uh, The second kind of major theme that we see in in Esther is Esther becomes queen, and Mordecai saves the king. Uh, Later on in the story, Queen Esther and Mordecai save the Jewish people. Haman is exalted to power. Mordecai becomes exalted to power later on. Haman decrees the destruction of the Jewish people, and then in a very parallel moment, Mordecai decrees the destruction of the people who are trying to exterminate the Jews. There is a uh, plan that Esther and Mordecai put together to reverse the decree on the front end, and then if, uh, if you've heard the expression, the laws of the Medes and Persians, it's a way of saying nothing can ever be changed. Of course, it is changed, and Mordecai and Esther plan to reverse that decree and send out word that... Uh, you do not have to fear extermination. Esther's first ba- in Esther's first banquet, Haman plots Mordecai's execution. In the second banquet, Haman is executed instead of Mordecai. And then right here is this hinge moment in the beginning of chapter 6 where Haman is humiliated and Mordecai is elevated. Now, what's the big point of this? What does this lead to? What is this showing us? What is the author of Esther trying to accomplish with this structure? It is something very specific. And I want you to consider what the pivot point is. What was the thing that turned the story? What was the shift? What was the hinge moment that that shifted Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people from certain death and and genocide to flourishing life and power. Well, here's a hint. It actually has nothing to do with anything any of the characters we've seen so far did. It was not Esther. It was not Mordecai. It was not Haman. It was not the, the, the power and prestige and wealth of 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 the Persians that shifted things, nor was the poverty of the Jewish people. It's in the passage that Mo read for us. The night, that night, 
sleep, escape the king. That's it. The king, ancient king, suffered the same ailment that you and I have. He couldn't sleep. And he woke up. And he didn't have Netflix to watch. He didn't have a Kindle to pull over and read. And so he asked for his servants. How about that? Like, he's got to wake somebody else up to come read the chronicles to him about what happens. You see, the great reversal in Esther hinges not on an army, not on Esther and Mordecai's strategy, not on Haman's devious plans. Again, not on the wealth of the Persians nor the poverty of the Jews. The whole thing flipped on its head because the king couldn't sleep. And here is what the author of Esther is doing. The author of Esther is subtly shouting at us, God did this. You don't see his name, but you see his hand. He is at work. Joseph didn't save the world and his family. God did. Moses didn't orchestrate the exodus. Yahweh did. The Hebrew boys in Babylon did not strategize their freedom. God miraculously delivered them. The function of this literary device, this structure, is to show us that God purposefully with great intention, uses unexpected people, unexpected places and circumstances to accomplish his purposes so that we might know deep down in our souls that it is the providential hand of God that makes the difference in our lives. And that is such good news today because so many of us in this performative culture feel like our destinies rest on our shoulders. And Esther is here to say that your destiny is held in the hands of Almighty God. Think about this in the broader scheme of Scripture. How about Mary and Joseph? How about the fact that I don't even have to tell you Mary and Joseph's backstory? How extraordinary is that? How do two totally anonymous, poor, ordinary kids from the tiny, obscure community of Nazareth become so significant that they are prominent fixtures in your home's Christmas decorations every year. Only God could do that. Peter, James, and John would have certainly attended Talmudin school in the synagogue when they were young. And they must have been passed over to be kind of advanced Talmudin's disciples. No other rabbi chose them to come and follow him but in a surprising reversal, another rabbi would extend an invitation, follow me, and it wouldn't just be any rabbi. It would be the Messiah rabbi, Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 5, we see this unfold. Jesus, this is one of the comedic uh, ironies and twists that Jesus deploys. Jesus, the carpenter in Luke chapter 5, advises professional, like generationally professional experienced fishermen how to fish. Jesus tells Peter, James, and John and their band of brothers to go a little deeper and put down their nets and you'll have the catch of your lifetime. Peter responds, we've spent all night fishing and we've not caught a thing. But if you say so, that's in the text. Now, what's not in the text, but is my kind of assumption, reading, human behavior, you have to believe that when Peter, James, and John, 
whose father were fishermen, whose father's father were fishermen, is told by a carpenter early on to go out a little deeper and put their nets down, that they probably rolled their eyes at each other, maybe cursed a little under their breath. Kind of this like, is, is, that's Joseph's son, right? I know he's got, he started teaching a little bit, but he's like a carpenter, and he's telling us how to fish. Okay, we'll put it down, and then all of a sudden, midway through that, you can probably see Peter and John looking at each other. John, 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 you're, you're, John, your boat is about to tip over. Your net's caught on something. What is going on? Oh, our nets are full of fish. A surprising reversal, but not the most surprising reversal in Luke chapter 5. Let me show you this. So when all of this happens, I want you to imagine, I want you to project, what would Peter's response be after he caught all of those fish? After he caught a fisherman's dream day of fish. When Simon Peter saw this, when he saw the great fish that they caught, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, go away from me because I'm a sinful man. Is this the reaction you would have expected? Like if you're just reading the story and you don't know the story, this is not the reaction we would have expected, right? They're, they're, in, they're in front of a fair number of people. A local, local fisherman would talk about this day for years to come. Peter, James, and John would be celebrities. Uh, they would have a ex- great day in the market. But honestly, though, I can relate to Peter on a deep level here. What we see in Peter here and is revealed in Peter's life throughout the rest of the scripture is that he has a great deal of inner shame. He's a man with mountainous insecurity who thinks to himself, who am I to receive such a gift? The kindness of Jesus was too much for Peter to bear. The kindness of Jesus, the friendship of Jesus, is in opposition to Peter's self-condemnation. He can't even bear to receive it. And Jesus senses this in Peter. Jesus knows this about Peter. And I want you to listen to Jesus' response to Peter saying, go away from me, because in Jesus' response, we see the heart of who God is. We see the heart of the Savior. Jesus responds to Peter, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Peter, Brad, maybe some of you in the room today, fear has driven your life thus far. Fear has controlled you. Fear has shaped the way you relate to other people. Fear has shaped your identity. But you don't need to be afraid anymore. I wonder how many of us in the room can comprehend God as creator and holy. Maybe even God as father who is wise. Maybe you can even believe that God loves But as one of our elders shared this weekend when we were talking about this passage, can you comprehend that God might actually like you? 
that God wants to relate to you, yes, as the sovereign Lord of the universe, and yes, as your benevolent Father, but that God also, in the very words that he said to his disciples, wants to regard you as friend. Are you like me? Do you struggle to actually accept the fact that God loves you? Do you struggle to receive God's love? What a shocking reversal for Peter. Don't be afraid from now on. You're going to be catching people. You're going to be a rabbi. And then they brought their boats to land. I love this. And they just left everything. And they followed him. Like they didn't sell it. They didn't put it on Craigslist. They didn't try to recruit their money. They just left their boats and said, I'm going to follow you. This reversal of experience with Jesus shapes how we respond to Jesus. This is a gospel in the gospel It's a peripatia, a sudden, unexpected change of fortune or reversal in our circumstances. Peter's life turns. He goes from rejected to friend, from lost to found, from fear to love, from sinner to saint. This is the great gospel reversal. Like the gallows built for Mordecai and Susa, a cross was once built outside of Jerusalem. But Pilate would not hang on that cross. Judas would not hang on that cross. The Roman soldiers would not hang on that cross. No, a friend would be made into an enemy. The healer would be the one who would be wounded. The innocent would be condemned. The hero, not the villain, would be executed on a Roman cross. And from the advantage point, from the vantage point rather, of Peter and James and John and Mary, Mary Magdalene, the cross looked like the death of hope. God seemed distant, God seemed indifferent, and God seemed silent. The Son of God was killed. And the parallel with Esther is profound. The evil Haman is going to win. The people of God have been sentenced to death. Gallows are built. Hope is on life support. But as Stacy so powerfully and masterfully showed us last week, Esther 5 begins with a third day. And a third day in the scriptures are always days of reversals. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried, but he was raised on the third day. On the cross, a great reversal was taking place. What was meant to bind brought freedom. What was meant to hurt gave way to healing and hope. What was meant for death brought about life. And hear me this morning. This great reversal was not just cosmic. It is profoundly personal. On the cross, Jesus reverses our destiny. Jesus reverses your destiny. We were sick with sin and under judgment, yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. Isaiah 53, 4. We were rebellious and twisted, but he was pierced for our rebellion and he was crushed because of our iniquities, literally in the Hebrew text, our twisted nature. We were the enemies of God. 
Not because God made us enemies, because we positioned ourselves as enemies towards God, but the punishment for our peace was on him. Our souls needed restoration. Our souls needed to be healed, to be mended, to be made whole. And we are healed by his wounds. The gospel of the cross, the gospel of the resurrection has reversed our destinies. Once sinners separated from God, now made saints in Christ Jesus. Death, the Jesus death reverses our death. Jesus was condemned, judged, and punished so that we might be given life, offered forgiveness, and set free. Here is the peripatia. Here's the great reversal. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of death also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. This is the great gospel reversal. So how do we apply this today? If you're in the room today and you're a bit skeptical, if you've been burnt by religion, if you've just gone through a rough time, you're just not sure what you believe in, the application I believe today would be, would you trust this? Would you believe in this? Instead of chasing and pursuing in your own efforts, trying to find enlightenment or hope or security, would you discover it and believe it to be found in Jesus? If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, how do you apply it? You believe it. You trust it. Maybe today some of you need to take a step of faith and to believe in the real Jesus, the real Jesus who is, yes, supremely holy, just, majestic, sovereign, righteous, worthy of all worship, Lord of lords, King of kings, coming again to rule and to reign. But also the one who says, I no longer regard you a servant. You're my friends. You're my son. You're my daughter. I welcome you into my presence. I embrace you. I want you to treat yourself with a bit more kindness because I have treated you with kindness. So believe it. Rest in it. Enjoy it. This is the beauty of the gospel. It leads us to the Lord's table. So our communion leaders can go ahead and take their place. Think about the the Last Supper, right? The Last Supper is a supper in which the disciples are a bit arrogant and confident. They're not sure all that's going on, but they are pretty confident that they will not fail Jesus. And by the end of it, they have all run away from Jesus, right? Jesus dies. Jesus rises, the great reversal happens. And what do we do? How do we respond to those who betray us, to those who walk away from us, to those who abandon us in our greatest time of need? Do we invite them to dinner? Do we send messengers and say, come dine with me? Do we get specific messages if we're guys like Peter, who are the ringleaders, do we get a special message that says, Peter, just in case there's any confusion, just in case there's any vagueness, you have been invited as well.
And we come into that space expecting condemnation. Instead, we get the embrace of a Savior. Even if you're not sure this is true, don't you want it to be? It's the beauty of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, as we prepare to gather around the table today, would you do a great transformative work in our hearts to allow us to approach this table with gratitude and praise and thanksgiving, but also with the level of comfort knowing that we are gathering around the table as spiritual family, as brothers and sisters, united in this holy, divine friendship with you, Almighty God. So let us leave our shame behind. Let us surrender our guilt and come in humility, but in glad, full hearts that we belong here because you have welcomed us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're new to Fellowship West, the way we take the Lord's Supper is for those of you who are followers of Jesus, or if you're a disciple of the Lord, you're welcome at the table. No matter what your week has looked like, you are welcomed at the table. Come to the table. But this table also represents the reality that we are family. We're spiritual family. We gather around the table as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then as people gather around the table, uh, those in the room, you get to act like you're at a house party. And so feel free to go across the room and say hello to a friend, talk with your neighbor, find out how you can pray for them, find out how their kid did at T-Ball this weekend. Just enjoy being in the room with friends and family. We'll have ushers dismiss you guys in groups of six, eight or so to the tables. Uh, we'll receive the Lord's table, then we'll come close together at the end. But let's receive uh, the goodness of the Lord together. Ushers, you can lead the way.